Hey, welcome to Advent Next, a platform where we hold life and faith discussions with experts and PhD professors in order to learn more about history, theology, and contemporary issues. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and today we're continuing our discussion with Dr. John Reeve from Andrews University Seminary, exploring the issue of women and ordination through the lens of history. Well, let's get into it. So if we can go back a little bit to the history of ordination and kind of how that word migrated into our vocabulary. I don't think you were finished with that story. I kind of interjected some some points there. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting that that we you know, I talked about the the origin of the term as being uh, 3rd century with Tertullian. Actually, the term belonged to uh, the Greco-Roman world before that. But the introduction of it as a designation of what happens when somebody becomes a minister in the Christian church is a 3rd century designation. So when you take a look at what the, the Bible actually says, um, there is no Greek term for ordination per se. Instead, what we have is a description of an action, laying on of hands. And the the laying on of hands terminology uh, is what the Bible uses that is the closest to what we would designate as an ordination. But it does not use it exclusively of creating a deacon or a presbyter slash pastor slash episkopos. Uh, the, the idea that a Christian minister is becoming something else is foreign to the New Testament. Mm. When we look in Acts 13 at the understanding of the laying on of hands of uh, Paul and Barnabas as they take off in their missionary journey, that is the spot where everybody points to and says, that's it, that's it, that's where we get ordination from. Well, what happens there is they are set aside for a purpose for a time. And I fully agree with that. Set aside for a purpose for a time is a great definition of what I think is happening. And we as an Adventist church have recognized that ordination is functional, not, uh, uh, not in, the, in the terms of ontological or in the terms of, of uh, uh, having a sacerdotal overtone. Uh, so the, the idea that, that we are set aside for a time, for a purpose, is a really good designation of what I think the Bible is teaching us about the choosing of a Christian minister. Mm-hmm. But the ordination overtones, the baggage I talked about, has to do with the sacerdotal overtones, the class and kind change overtones, those things which are inherent to the word ordination in the third century, we have tried to, di- uh, to, to change it and take them away. We've tried to dump the baggage, but keep the term. But we haven't quite dumped the baggage. There, there's the problem. The, and the two things that are there that I don't think are in Scripture are the idea that it is a change. Ellen White actually talks about the idea that there is no change that takes place at the setting aside of a minister. The minister's not changed. They are chosen by God, yes. They are gifted by God, yes, and all that. But the ordination act doesn't do any change. It just recognizes what God is doing, what God has changed. Okay, so the, the, the divorcing of the idea of a change at the hand of a human act 
is an important divesting of the baggage that should not be there in the term ordination, as contrasted what we see happening to Paul and Barnabas as they are set aside for a time for a purpose in uh, Acts 13, going on this missionary journey. Uh, the other thing that is very important to recognize that is a piece of baggage of ordination is much more complex. And that is the idea that it is a sacerdotal designation. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I, I knew that you would ask me that. So I, I have to get ready to, to have a bit of a description. Okay. Uh, sacerdotal is, again, a term that comes to us from uh, uh, Roman religion. It has to do with designating that this is now in the religious realm. This is now in the realm of dealing with the things that make a difference in the religious realm. And so let's take, it, it doesn't start with a priesthood. In fact, we do not have a priesthood in the New Testament other than the priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of all believers. Mm -hmm. We do not have a separate priesthood in the New Testament that is a priesthood of Christian ministry. That's a second century and third century development within Christianity that is going away from the New Testament. Mm. And it's adding the idea that we need a priesthood. Well, why do we need a priesthood? For a sacrifice. What's a priesthood for? It's to offer sacrifices. So then when we're going to say we're going to have a sacrifice here, well, where's the sacrifice? Well, the sacrifice is a sacrifice of Christ, of course. And in the Old Testament, we did have a particular priesthood that was offering sacrifices in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Mm. And that's why we had all these designations. Had to be a Levite, had to be a son of Aaron, had to be uh, a male, et cetera, et cetera. All these designations come from, had to wear certain clothes, had to make sure they weren't uh, 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 drinking, and, and before they do this, they're not going to have sex, et cetera. All these designations are to talk about what the particular priesthood is representing as they are anticipating the coming of the sacrifice. Okay, so the sacrifice came, and the temple was ripped by the hand of God from the top to the bottom. And that designates that the true sacrifice is here. Jesus Christ, that which had been pointed toward by all sacrifices, has died on the cross. The true sacrifice, that which has been represented by all the sacrifices, is now here and it is once and for all, Hebrews tells us. Repeatedly, the priests, the human priests, had to offer sacrifices repetitively. But Christ, it was once for all. And that once for all sacrifice is the designation that now we have one priest. He is our high priest. He is Jesus Christ. He is in heaven mediating his once-for-all sacrifice. Now, the mediation continues because the mediation of the forgiveness continues through time. But it's from that sacrifice, not a new sacrifice. So we don't need a priesthood in Christianity because Christ is our priest and the sacrifice has been done. So we don't need an ongoing priesthood on earth with an ongoing sacrifice until... The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of that sacrifice gets changed conceptually into a repeated sacrifice. Mm. And this happens 
in many ways, the simplest way to, to follow it is, is to, to recognize what Justin Martyr does with Malachi 1.11. Malachi 1.11, he says, could not have been fulfilled by the Jews because Malachi 1.11 says that there is a sacrifice in all places. Hmm. And he says, the Jews only ever sacrificed in Jerusalem. So this obviously was not fulfilled by the sacrifice of the Jews in Jerusalem. But we Christians, we offer a sacrifice of praise in every city of the world. And it's, it's, a, it's a really neat thing, actually, except for what the overtones and, and, and what the tendency of it is. He's reconceptualizing the Eucharist hmm. as, and, and by the way, the term Eucharist is simply the word thankfulness in Greek. We call it the Eucharist because we are thankful for what Jesus did for us. It, it, the core of the Eucharist is remembering. We do the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. We do this in remembrance of the actual sacrifice. We are not re-sacrificing. We're remembering the sacrifice. We're not reenacting a sacrifice. We're remembering that once-for-all sacrifice. And the need for a priesthood comes about with the reconceptualization of that sacrifice as, uh, excuse me, of that remembering as now a sacrifice. Mm. So the Eucharist becomes a sacrifice offered by humans to God. Not something that actually took place at the real sacrifice. You, the reason the particular priesthood had all those designations in the Old Testament is because they were not representing humans. They were representing God. And the reason that the, that the Christian ministry never has those designations is they're not representing God, they're representing humans. Humans' response to God. Who is our priest? It is Jesus Christ. And so we do not need, and there is never a call for, a priesthood in the New Testament except for the priesthood of all believers and the high priesthood of Christ. So when Christianity redesignated the remembrance of the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice which worked into being a mass, the idea that now the priest is offering a fresh sacrifice and this sacrifice is bringing about the forgiveness of sins. Hmm. Wow. Suddenly we have a usurpation of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. Suddenly we have a usurpation of the high priesthood of Christ alone. We have a, whenever there is a, a priesthood made by humans when God has not called for one, it turns out bad. Hmm. Take a look at Gideon. You know, we, we tell the, story, the children's story about uh, the, the early part of Gideon's life, uh, the great faith of having only 300 people and going into battle, not with swords, but with trumpets, and God fights for them. And that's fantastic. But at the end of his life, Gideon sets up an ephod and starts a new priesthood, and it ends up being a bad thing. Mm. And of course, there's that Dathan or Byram thing. Uh, they decide to set up an alternate priesthood mm. of their own making, and it turns out very bad. In fact, the earth eats them up by God's command. And, and so the idea that we would create a priesthood when God didn't call for one is violence against what we find in the New Testament, where Christ is our priest, not us. Now, we're all priests 
in that the priesthood of all believers, the kingdom of priests, are involved in inviting people into Christ's relationship. Mm. But there's no separate particular priesthood on earth in the New Testament or called for by the New Testament, but the church made one. Wow. So this is where all of the characteristics of the Old Testament priesthood of being male and and only, you know, being the head of the household, like these masculine patriarchal qualities um, are now applied to the New Testament because we've now seen the necessity to reestablish a priesthood when the, the, the Eucharist and the transubstantiation came into play. As, as the Eucharist and the understanding of it being the offering of a sacrifice. Mm. So the Eucharist is no problem. The remembering and thankfulness is exactly what 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to do. Right. But that gets changed mm. into we are now offering something to God. And if we don't do this thing, it doesn't, forgiveness does not happen. Mm. So there's, there's, there's a very important difference between what Christ does and what the church ends up doing. Mm. Christ mediates his own sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, mm. the death of God on our behalf. And I know there's difficulties with the concept of death of God, and, and that's a different story, and we'll talk about that at a different time. But the, the idea that God offered himself on our behalf, mm. okay, then the church decides that it's going to offer repetitively in, in distinction from what Hebrews does. They're going to offer repetitively. Not remember repetitively, but offer repetitively. And that demands a priesthood. And that priesthood is not called for by God or by the or in Scripture, and it is provided anyway. And they do not take all the designations of the Old Testament priesthood. They only take the ones that are convenient to them. They take only the idea of maleness. They do not take the rest of the particular ideas. They just separate out the one and bring it across and then pretend that is the representation of this. And, and so it, it's not a good, clean understanding of Scripture and then an application of Scripture. But it does have the force of Christian tradition. And it becomes the normal way to read the New Testament. If you have this concept of what the minister is, and then you read it into the New Testament, you find it in the New Testament. Mm. But that's from the side of the reader, not from the side of the text. Mm. So this is why I, I, I would argue that it's very important to go back to the text rather than back to the reception of the text. To go back to the text of Scripture to get your truth about Scripture rather than to go to the early church to get your truth about Scripture. Right. And so when they developed this understanding of a sacerdotal priesthood, a sacredness of this sacrifice, they are creating God. When it comes down to it, the claim is that they are creating God by the words of the priest. Now, as Adventists would look at this, no, 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 that's not what we're after at all. But that's part and parcel with having a priesthood not called for by God functioning on earth right. as an ordained priesthood. So that's why I think the mistake is made mm -hmm. clear back in the misconceptualization of the remembrance mm -hmm. in the Lord's Supper as a re-offering of a new sacrifice. 
And the second mistake is made in to develop the Christian ministry into a Christian priesthood to handle the cultus of the offered sacrifice. Mm. So in a nutshell, that's where the sacerdotal side went wrong. Right. So that, that, that the term ordo or ordination, you know, was developed in, in conjunction with how the church was beginning to uh, reinterpret the re-sacrifice of Christ through transubstantiation of the Eucharist. And that that new priesthood had to have a certain, I think Augustine talked about it, indelibus character, like that, that they had the seal uh, of a character that could never be changed. That's the, the change of, of status. Right. The class and kind difference. If it's given, it cannot be taken back because a change has been made. And, and that, that is heart and soul to one of the problems of the word ordination. Because instead of seeing a group of people set aside for a specific purpose for a time by the laying on of hands, which is what we find in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Acts 13, we have instead a church deciding to ordain and make a class and kind change that is then unchangeable. So this brings me back to today. So what, what is our current understanding of the difference between ordination and commission? Because women now, we, we have these two different classes. We have those who are ordained and those who are commissioned. And what is the actual differentiation between the two titles? Well, you're asking and function. me, yeah, you're asking me something that is in flux. Hmm. We do not have a clear definition of ordination mm. or of commission or of the difference between them or why. Mm. On the one hand, we say we have voted that ordination is purely functional. It is not ontological. There is no class and kind change. But if that's true, why then can't women be ordained? Mm. And the, the answer immediately turns cultural. Hmm. It immediately turns to the idea of, well, uh, women can do this and can't do that. Well, is that cultural distinction or is that a biblical distinction? And, and when you start looking at where those distinctions came from, they predate the New Testament. Those distinctions go clear back to Plato, Aristotle, the idea of the hierarchy of being of Aristotle. You have different classes and kinds of things. You're starting with dirt and rocks, you know, those that's just a little part. And then you got the simple, creepy, crawly animals. And then you got the more complex animals. And then you get to the animals that walk up on all fours, etc. And then you get to the humans. But the humans are not just one, one slice of that. The humans are multiple slices of that. The multiple slices of the humans in the Aristotelian understanding of the hierarchy is that women, children, and slaves are on the lower level. Hmm. And they are of a kind, he says, to be ruled. And therefore, the males that are landowners of the senatorial class, they are of a kind to rule. So the class and kind change in the designation of Roman society comes from Aristotle. Well, Aristotle gets it from other places as well, but it's a cultural distinction that is an old, very, very old and revered by many people cultural distinction. Hmm. But just because it's old doesn't mean it's not cultural. Right. 
So the cultural distinction of the difference of class and kind between those who are of a kind to be ruled and those who are of a kind to rule has to do more with economic status than anything else, and gender, of course, and age. So slaves and women and children, and he doesn't actually say it in, in this passage that I quote in my chapter. Mm. He doesn't actually say it there, but he means by that class anybody who is not the principled money uh, landed class. Mm. So the landed gentry, if I can grab a term from, from much later in, in England, is the designation of class that he's talking about that are of a kind to rule. Mm. So of a kind to rule comes into the church. Only those who are designated as of a kind to rule mm. can receive the ordo and actually rule. Mm. Now, the question is, okay, but do we really want the ordo to be a ruling? It definitely is in the church as played out in history, but Jesus Christ said it should not be so among you. You should not lord it over one another. They should not be ruling over one another on earth. Right. He says that's what the Gentiles do. It should not be so among you, but that's exactly what the church did. And the church ended up making ordination a thing of rule. Hmm. The reason women cannot be ordained is because they are not of a class and kind to rule. Mm. And the reason men can is because they are of a class and kind to rule. Therefore, it is a ruling function. And that just is going That's not all how against believes, yeah. the New Testament in so many levels. But this becomes the thing that the fundamentalist evangelicals are saying we must hold on to or we're giving up the Bible. Mm. Yeah, that, that leadership is not to rule over others, but it's to be the the most in service, you know. Now let me go back to your specific question in the dynamics of ordination versus commissioning. We don't seem to have any trouble, at least officially, or voted trouble, mm -hmm. with women in leadership. Only with women ordination. Those two are not distinguished in the New Testament, by the way. Right. They're distinguished in church history. And as we look at what that means. It's okay for a woman to do everything. But they not just get can't the credit. Be, they just can't be ordained while they do it. Not, right. what, what, what is this? So a, a woman can marry. A woman can baptize. A woman can, can lead a church. A woman can be a pastor. A woman can do all these things. But a woman cannot be ordained. Well, what really does that block? According to Adventist polity, that has been voted by the GC. What does that block? The only things that are blocked from a commissioned person that are allowed to an ordained person is the establishing of churches and the being of a president of a conference. Hmm. And you say, okay, so if you look at our praxis, and say, what, is that, what, what does that designation mean? Then it says, oh, well, they can't be the head. Well, okay, but just a minute. Is an ordained minister a head? In the Catholic Church, yes. More and more in evangelical fundamentalism, yes. 
in Adventism, it has never been so mm. until recently. And suddenly we have this headship theology comes up where headship becomes the thing that woman can't do and headship is the thing that the minister must do and suddenly we're in con we're, we're fighting with Christ. Hmm. Christ said it should not be so among you. Who is the head of the church according to the New Testament? Christ. So when we come to this, this conceptualization of headship, it is taking a culturally defined Aristotelian uh, uh, a dynamic of what the home is like and then putting that structure onto the church. Mm. Wow. And I'm saying, I'm just describing what here? And as a historian, I get in trouble because I'm, I'm accused of, of being impious. But I'm simply describing what happened. Right. And why, I don't try to get to, although I have my own opinions, but the why of it doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. Because the why always looks as if it is holding on to power. The mm. why always says, we need to make sure we're in power. Now, I may be overstepping my bounds because I told you we can't tell why from history. Right. But the what points that direction. Right. Looking at history, you know, I think the church is in a particular place today where we are trying to understand the difference or how to balance unity versus uniformity. Sure. You know, you have a growing church all over the world, and they're saying, how do we keep the distinctness of Adventism? How do we keep the distinctness of our doctrines if we don't enforce a certain kind of uniformity? And kind of looking at your study of history and where we are today, like, what does that look like in the coming future? Like, is that, is that really a sustainable model? Um, yeah. It looks like creedalism. Hmm. Um, I mean, just quite frankly, in the early church, whenever there was a call for, for unity, and by that they always meant uniformity, there was two things at stake. Uh, who gets to be in charge and what do we believe? And the what do we believe may have been most important in some people's minds, but certainly who was in charge was more important in other people's minds. So when you, when you take a look at the struggle in the middle of the third century after the Decian persecution, where Cyprian uh, is, is trying to reestablish his authority as bishop after he has left town during the persecution and is accused by everybody as running away. And uh, uh, when he comes back, he has to assert his official authority for the unity of the church, because his earned authority as leader is gone. He ran away when things got tough. So when he comes back after Decius has been murdered and there is no persecution, it looks like, okay, the wimp has come back. What are we going to do? Well, Cyprian didn't like that at all. He wanted to reassert his authority, and properly so in some ways. Because it is true that there should be authority with church leaders. We need that. Just how do we define it and how do we get it? Is it something that is there because of office or is it something that is there given by the people? Hmm. Now, in, 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 the, in the idea of ordination, it's in the office. In the idea of a functional minister, it's given by the people. Hmm. And that's a big, massive difference in what the church is. Is the church the leader 
or is the church the people? And in Cyprian's day, he asserted that the church is the leader. Where the, where the bishop is, there the church is. So he's asserting his official authority. And in order to make it happen, since the local people are saying, well, here's our, here's our official authority leader, and he ran off when the going got tough, what are we going to do? He calls a church council for all the other bishops from all the other towns come around. He is their recognized metropolitan bishop for all of the area of North Africa. And when these dozens of, of bishops get together, they all recognize him as the head. Hmm. Okay, so official authority is reasserted. He's the leader of the leaders, therefore he's now the head of the church. But in our church polity, in, we have said, no, we are a church polity that is from the, from the ground up. Membership is the church. The people are the church, not the leader. The church is not defined as the leader, and therefore the church gets their authority from the people, not the, the authority of, the, of God comes to the leader and sprinkles down to the people. Mm. It's just a complete opposite situation. Who's God giving authority to? And the, the recognition in the New Testament is it's the priesthood of all believers. Mm. God is having a relationship with every person. God is saving each person. God is not depending on the church as the conduit of salvation. This is the core of sacerdotalism. The church becomes the conduit of salvation. Grace comes to the Pope who hands it to his bishops, who hands it to their presbyters, who hands it to their people. Mm. So grace is something that is in the pocket of the church leaders. Mm. The Holy Spirit comes to those that have the ordination. They are the ones who have the Holy Spirit. This is the, the, the call and response at the end of the Mass. Uh, blessings on all of you. And the answer of the people call comes, and with your spirit. You know, mm -hmm. God be with you and with your spirit. Mm -hmm. So the idea there is, liturgically, they're emphasizing that the, that the head of the church controls the Holy Spirit and grace. Wow. And that's the sacerdotal claim of the church that is part and parcel with the term ordination as they understand it in history. And that's why I'm uncomfortable with the term ordination. Yeah. It has too much baggage with it. So when we say, oh, but that's not the real church of God, that's the Antichrist that developed over the, 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 the time of the Antichrist and that we reject. But we didn't reject it all. Mm. We're holding on to that piece where we have a human head of the church. That's not from scripture. That's from sacerdotalism and the idea that we have strongly called the reason the church became antichrist is because it was offering an alternate salvation to that which Christ is offering. Mm. The alternate sacrifice, the alternate understanding of grace, the alternate availability of grace. So wh the way this all starts in history, by the way, because it's, it's tough to say, okay, the church becomes antichrist. You know, God's church, precious church, becomes that which is most against God. It doesn't happen overnight. It took hundreds of years. Right. Uh, but, but one of the key pieces of that 
was the changing relationship with God on the part of the people. Mm. And when we read, let me, let me just go clear back to Sinai for a minute. What happened at Sinai wasn't exactly what should have happened, maybe. And on God's side, it's fine. But on the people's side, the response was, was not appropriate. Mm. They said, okay, we're afraid. You go. You go represent us. Moses, you go. Now, Moses was afraid, too. It says Moses was trembling. You know, mm. we, we read that in, in Hebrews 12. But, but when we get to the response of the people, they kind of reject their direct relationship with God and want some intermediary. Mm. They want someone to protect them from God. And so when we have that understanding in paganism, they have priesthoods in paganism to protect the people from God and still get the benefits. But the concept is there, we need someone to go represent us because we can't handle it. God is a little too capricious for us, and so we're not sure we trust him, so you go and interact with God, and then you bring us the blessings. Hmm. And then the relationship becomes, in, in, in paganism, the relationship becomes, um, we will give you the sacrifice, and you give us the blessings. So a quid pro quo relationship with God builds up. And the people are saying, okay, we will do what we need to do to get the blessings of God, but we need that little protection, so we need some mediators between us and God. But we will gladly offer as long as we get. So this, this, this relationship of one-step separation, but we give and God gives, and everybody wins, is the pagan relationship with God. Hmm. The idea, I offer the sacrifice, God sends the rain. Now, this is what Elijah broke up during that three years of drought. You say, Baal gives the rain? I'm here to tell you, he doesn't. Pretty simple. Go ahead, offer your sacrifices, see if you get rain. For th until I say it, there will be no rain. Baal is not in charge of the rain. And he takes off, and everybody tries to kill him, and three years later, they meet on Mount Carmel and realize that God brings the rain, and sure enough, right after the people repent, here comes the rain. Now, that kind of relationship with God is not what God wants. He does not want, you offer sacrifice, I give you the blessing. That's the relationship with Baal. That's the relationship the Romans had with with Jupiter. That's the pagan relationship with God. And that's what becomes the norm in the sacerdotal system that comes to be known as Roman Catholicism. Mm. The idea that we give the sacrifice and God gives the salvation. We eat and we're saved. If you eat, you're saved. If you don't eat, you're not saved. If you're offered something to eat by someone who's not an ordained priest, part of the conduit of grace, it doesn't change anything. You're not saved. But if you eat something that is ordained, offered by an ordained person, part of the conduit of grace, it's life-changing. So what makes the difference? The ordination, the conduit, the church. The church is in charge of salvation. The church mediates salvation. And the person, the human, comes and offers the sacrifice by eating the Eucharist and becomes saved by it. And when the withholding of the Eucharist 
is the withholding of salvation, and the giving of the Eucharist is the giving of salvation. There you have a complete separate system of salvation that has been set up in defiance of God. Mm. And that, unfortunately, is tangled with the idea of ordination. Do we mean all that when we say ordination? No. But how much of it do we mean and how much of it do we not mean? There's the question. When we say commissioning, we mean nothing, none of it. But when we say ordination and say there's something added with ordination that you can't get from just the laying on of hands by the people of God, the recognition that God has gifted the individual, the, the recognition that the Holy Spirit has set apart this person as a pastor, and then we recognize that and commission them as a pastor, that seems to fulfill everything I find in the New Testament. Mm. The slice of what we mean different between ordination and commissioning then doesn't come from the Bible. Mm. It comes from sacerdotalism. It comes from that which we have labeled the Antichrist. Well, there you have it, folks. It's been my pleasure to host Dr. John Reeve on this podcast today, discussing the history of ordination. Now, this is just the beginning of the conversation. There's so much more scholarly research that has already been done. In fact, a number of his colleagues will be joining me in future episodes, so I hope you all stay tuned. And if you can, get a copy of the book. It's a fantastic resource. I think every person should have it in their library. So just on a personal note, it has been inspiring for me to come across research such as this. As a woman in seminary who feels called to ministry, it's nice to know that there is Bible-based evidence that supports me being here. And not only that, there are people who are dedicated to seeing both myself and my colleagues succeed in ministry, wherever and however God calls us. So I hope you enjoyed this program today. Please stay tuned for next week as we continue to explore Bible-based topics from some of the world's finest and ablest scholars. But before you go, let us know, what questions would you like to have answered and what topics do you think we should explore?